Well, thank you guys for having me. I mean, I know it was all your choices for me to be here, so I appreciate that. Um, I want to thank Chad for a great introduction. If our two churches had a Facebook relationship status, it would have been it's complicated uh, on so many levels. Um, I just really wish we could just keep singing. I don't know about you. Like, I don't know that anything I have to say is going to be as good as what just happened. So um, that's a good setup for you guys. <laughs> well, I'm excited to be here. And, and I'm excited because I've met several graduates from Ozark and have actually enjoyed them as people and as pastors. And so uh, I, I, I sense there's a tradition here of people who, who trust deeply in Jesus and who want to do amazing things through him. I want you to imagine a guy about my height, and um, I want you to imagine him as fairly overweight, about 75 pounds overweight, and the reason you'll know that is because he typically didn't wear a shirt. He had stringy blonde hair, and he always wore sunglasses, because if he didn't and he looked at you, he would look you in the eyes, you would actually feel real fear. You would always hear him before you saw him. Because his truck would come cruising down the street, a late model Jeep Wagoneer spray-painted, yes, spray-painted, electric blue by none other than Tim himself. In that truck, it would be bursting with screamo metal. And the ceiling of it was covered in pornography that he had cut out of magazines. You don't want to know how I found that out. It was a total accident. He would cruise down the street and crash into the driveway and come out yelling and hacking. The reason I know that is because Tim was my neighbor. He lived next to me as I grew up and as I went to high school. And the reason I know things about Tim is because one night he caught me in the front yard and we started a conversation. We started talking about how he had had a conversation once with the devil. You always love to start there. We talked about his hard living. We talked about the things that he had done to his body over the years. And after about four hours, as I sat in his kitchen drinking what I hoped was Kool-Aid that was on the up and up, um, he asked me what I was going to do with my life. And I said, well, I'm going to become a preacher. And he stopped and he said, whoa, let me tell you, I'm from West Virginia, so I'm going to add the accent here. Let me tell you something. Every time you're up there, I don't care what you say, but you better have that book right out in front of you. Homiletics advice from a man who's talked to the devil. These things happen. (laughs) And he said, hey, come here. And he took my hand. And he placed it ever so awkwardly on his clammy chest. And I was like, this is not happening, please. (laughs) Jesus, if you're going to return now, now would be a great time. And he said, do you feel that? And I really wished I did. And I said, no, I I don't, I don't. He goes, that's right. His heartbeat had become like a whisper because of all the destructive things that he had done to his body. And he looked at me and said, one day, one day that thing's going to get me. And it just so happened that several months later, there was a knock on our door and this meek and mild red-haired lady that was his wife told us that in the middle of the night, he had passed away. His heart simply stopped. And I carry that memory with me for a very specific reason, because Tim was my neighbor. Who's your neighbor? And do you know them? Do you know the conversations they've had with the devil? Do you know the wounding that's gone on in their lives? See, when I read Jesus, here's what I see. I see Jesus coming to give this proclamation that God is doing something big and bold and brand new. 
And as he gives this proclamation, he says this very one specific thing. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's saying, change your mind. Repent, at its root, is change the way that you think. Because people have been praying that God's kingdom would finally come. And so he's saying, it's coming. You're going to get what you've been praying for, but you're going to have to ask a whole bunch of new questions. All of your assumptions are obliterated because that's how life works. When you get the thing you've been seeking, it changes the questions that you ask. When you get that internship that you've been waiting for, you now have a bunch of new questions to answer. When she or he says yes to your proposal, you now have a whole bunch of new questions to answer. Those questions are critical to what Jesus is doing and helping welcome people into a brand new kingdom. And the reason I know that is because how we're wired as people. You and I come out as infants with curiosity as our native software. It's loaded in from the beginning. Researchers say that kids up to the age of four ask between 300 and 400 questions a day. 95% of those are just one word. Why? 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 I have a 10-year-old. She did it. It's true. But after the age of four, those questions take a steep drop off all throughout the rest of our lives until suddenly that curiosity for most people just disappears. Why is that? Well, I think part of it's because we get busy, right? We've just got stuff to do. We don't have time to ask questions and ponder and pontificate. Some of it's because we have Google. There's not a whole lot of curiosity left if you can ask Siri or Google whatever you want to know. Like, just ask Siri sometime to divide zero by zero. It's fantastic what you might learn. But I think the bigger reason is because as we grow up, as we become responsible, we know what a question means. A question means if you're asking, it means you don't know. And none of us want to be seen as people who don't know. We want to be seen as the ones who have it all together, who have figured it all out. And then what we do with that is we take that idea and we transfer it onto faith. And we say, God is so much more interested in me being certain than me being curious, even though he created me for the one and not necessarily for the other. I don't think there's anything wrong with certainty. There are things you need to be certain about. When my daughter starts driving, I want her to be certain about which pedal is the gas and which pedal is the brake. This is a life-saving kind of thing. You see, curiosity is just how we give context to the things that we're certain about. Questions are the way we figure out, what does this look like in the world I actually live in? And the reason I know that is because Jesus also said this. He said, truly I tell you, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not about permission. This is about, will you get it? Will you understand what it means to live in this big, beautiful new world that God is building? Because listen, God is not doing a remake, it's a revolution. And it's changing everything. And that means that our questions will change as well. Do you think Jesus met little children who asked 300 to 400 questions a day? What would it look like to have a spiritual life that consisted of asking rather than just blindly knowing? I believe that's what Jesus is about. And I believe the church should be a place where we welcome questions. All the messiness that comes along with that, all of the pain, all of the tension, all of the bizarre stuff that comes along with questions, the church should be a place where we welcome those kind of things. Because they're the things that give context to our life in the kingdom of God. And so I want to just walk through one question that struck me as I was pursuing this whole idea. And that question is this, who's your neighbor? 
Or you can put it a different way. Who is the other? Who is that person that is other than you, that is different from you? Who is your Tim? Your neighbor who's had conversations with the devil and screams down the street playing speed metal at full volume. Who is your neighbor, your other? Jesus has this challenge that comes his way from a man who who is called a lawyer or an expert. It says this, just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to live in this big, beautiful new kingdom? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, all your muchness and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And then he said to him, Jesus said to him, the lawyer, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Seems really, really simple, right? And this is why I love and why spiritual formation is part of my heartbeat. It's because spiritual formation is the process by which God, through the Holy Spirit, transforms us into the character and activity of Jesus. That's what it is. But that all is fired up by this idea of loving God with every resource we have and loving our neighbors as ourselves and making that the radical center of everything that we do. Because the pursuit of loving God with everything and the pursuit of loving our neighbor as ourself rarely ever leads us to sin. It shapes us. Because then every vote that we cast, every dollar that we spend, every word that we say suddenly is put into this context of does this love God with everything? And this love my neighbor as myself. Who's my neighbor? Who is the person affected by who I really love? Now, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I have not only in my life with friends, my life online, my life with my wife, but there's a moment all of us experience where we know we should stop talking. Are you familiar with this? There's that moment where the little troll that controls the gate that keeps your words in suddenly falls asleep with the job and he leaves the gate open and you're like, that shouldn't come out. I should stop texting right now. I should stop talking right now. And you don't. That's what happens to the lawyer because listen to what he says next. Wanting to justify himself. That's never a good place to start. Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, we have this sanctified time space where we can look back on this and go, what an idiot, right? It wasn't a great question, but he somehow stumbled into what I think is the most important question. And it's not so much about the neighbor part. It's about the who part. And so he asked Jesus for a task. Tell me who my neighbor is so I can go love him real hard. And instead of giving him a task, Jesus gives him a tale. A story of a man walking from the temple in Jerusalem down to a city called Jericho. And as he's walking, he gets beaten up and left for dead by the roadside. Now, the Jericho Road was famous for being super dangerous. There's a road in Nairobi, Kenya called Juja Road that's about the same. People get carjacked there all the time. The Jericho Road was a very dangerous road, and we have a picture of it. I want you to look at this picture for a second. That's the Jericho Road. What I want you to notice is the sides of the Jericho Road. On one side, there is a massive hill going up. On the other side, there is a deep, steep slope going down. So this person, this person that Jesus is talking about, is going down from the temple to Jericho. He's beaten up by robbers, and he's left on the side of the road. When you picture that first, what would it look like to lay on the side of that road? You're either on the side of a hill or you're laying on a, <laughs> on a slope about to go down. Now, we also know since the man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he's probably leaving the temple. So most people hearing Jesus' story would have thought, this is a good dude. 
This is a faithful, he's doing his temple stuff, he's a great guy, he's the guy we all want to be. And this is the guy who gets beat up, all that's all feels sad for that guy. But at the same time, everybody knew it was a dangerous road, so why take that road? Why not go a different way? Was there not another way? There was another way. But the other way went through Samaritan country. It was shorter and it was safer. But nobody took it. Because from birth, Jewish people have been taught, you don't go near Samaritans. You don't go through that neighborhood. Right? We, we know this. It's that place we've been taught, you don't go through there at night with your doors unlocked. That's that place where we go, where they say, don't stop at any stoplights, just keep going. It's the place where those people live. The people who are different from us, who smell different, act different, worship different, dress different, have different customs, different beliefs. Those people we've been taught to distrust our entire life. You know, the people we see in an airport and we suddenly become suspicious and scared. People we don't understand. So Jesus tells a story and sets up two people. This guy doesn't want to go to the Samaritan part of the world. But he's also a really good guy that everybody identifies with. And so they're all identifying with the wholesome guy and all identifying with this plan not to go through the dangerous part of town. But they're also identifying with this guy because a lot of us know what it means to get beaten up and robbed and left behind. Metaphorically, maybe. Oh, maybe literally, but definitely metaphorically. We all know what it feels like to have someone look at us and decide who we are by what they see. We all know what it's like to have somebody create the whole story of who we are based on where we're from. I'm from West Virginia. People automatically think I don't wear shoes. I'm like, dude, I grew up in the suburbs. Like, we had a mall. We've all felt that. What it's like to be excluded and left behind and beaten up. And so, in Jesus' story, everyone listening could have identified with the guy laying beside the road. They could have identified with his desire to stay out of danger. They could have identified with the way that he's feeling. They could have identified with the temple from which he came. And then they could also identify with what happens next. And this is maybe more for the lawyer. Two guys come by. A priest and a Levite. And both of them, the text says, Jesus says, they both came and went around to the other side of the road to avoid the guy who was beaten up and left for dead. I want you to go back in your minds to the picture of the Jericho road we just saw. How did they go to the other side of the road? Because if he's on this side near the slope, they would have to climb up a hill. And if he's on the other side, they would have to walk right along the edge where they could have fallen off to their own deaths. It was so important for them not to be near this guy, not to risk it. Commentators will tell you maybe they still wanted to stay clean because they had a ritual to perform. Some people would say other reasons. I think that's just priest-splaining, honestly. The honest truth is they didn't want the risk. They didn't want the risk of loving that other the way he needed to be loved. And so everybody in the story is waiting because every story in Jesus' time had three pieces. There were two villains and then there would be a hero. And I bet people were going, ooh, number three will be somebody like me. Average everyday Jewish guy and I'm going to be the hero and I'm going to win. And then Jesus says this, but a Samaritan while traveling came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. No, no, no. This is not how that story is supposed to end. Jesus, you're making things complicated because what you just did is you took somebody we all hate 
And you gave him a characteristic that we all know, compassion, pity. And it makes us go back and start thinking, who is our neighbor? Who is that other? He had pity, compassion. He's moved in his guts for the man who's laying on the side of the road. And so it begs the question, what if compassion... What if compassion means that someone else's suffering becomes our business, no matter what? See, people could have walked by this guy laying on the side of the road and said, you know what, that was his choice. He chose to go there. Not my problem. Not my problem. He's going to have to deal with it. Somebody else will call 911. Someone else will find an ambulance. Not my problem. Not my person. Not my business. And yet the Samaritan in Jesus' story, who nobody was supposed to like, and who wasn't even really supposed to be there, comes along and he says, that is my business. That is my problem. And oh, what a revolution it is when Jesus makes heroes of our enemies. What if that's what's actually happening here? You see, because Jesus is answering a question, but he's not answering the question. The lawyer wants to know who his neighbor is. And Jesus says, let me tell you about a Samaritan that was a hero. And everybody went, never heard of such a thing. He felt compassion. He suffered with him, but he did more than just that. He acted on it. He said he went to him. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. He gave the deepest of his money. It's not like he had this huge savings account to draw from. That day you made and what you made that day you ate off of. That sustained you for that day. This is two days worth of life that this guy gave up for someone who actually probably hated him. He didn't just feel it. He acted it. So what happens when Jesus takes our enemies and turns them into heroes by showing them doing the thing that he wanted us to do in the first place? That's the kind of revolution that Jesus was launching. And I love what he says, because I love Jesus, because I almost want to imagine Jesus' facial features, because he's watching the lawyer, and the lawyer's jaw is like, and everybody around the lawyer is like, and then Jesus finishes this way. He says, which of these three do you think? Right? Which of these, th- do you th- which of these guys do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And I love, the lawyer says, he said, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say Samaritan. He can't even spit the word out of his mouth. My enemy is the hero. I can't say that. The one, that guy, that group over there they're the ones who did it right and jesus says to him go and do likewise this is jesus messing with our heads honestly he's asking a question we never thought to ask ourselves which is this what if it's not about compassion necessarily what if it's not necessarily about serving people who are in trouble i think that is part of what it's about and i i love this quote from nt wright And I rarely ever disagree with him, but he says this, no church, no Christian can remain content with easy definitions which allow us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the road. I agree with that. Because if you disagree with N.T. Wright, I think you get kicked out of Christianity or something like that. I don't know how that works. We are called to be troubled by people laying by the roadside. 
In our churches, in our communities, there are people literally being beaten, either politically, economically, spiritually, or emotionally, and they're lying everywhere. And as a matter of fact, most of our churches are just gatherings of ditch dwellers who have found their way right side up. That's all we really are. But what if this isn't about who we help necessarily? What if this is about who we are? Because see, Jesus answers a question that was asked to find a task. And he says, don't go do something, go be something. What if Jesus' hope from this story is not that this man would know that you're supposed to love Samaritans? What if, what if it was to say, you need to go be the kind of person who pulls people out of the ditch regardless of who they are. You need to become someone that you are not. That's what spiritual formation is. And that's why questions are so important because then you and I get to ask, who am I not? And who is God calling me to become? And the deeper question underneath that is this. What if loving our neighbor as ourselves means when something happens to them, it happens to us? That changes the shape of who we are. What if when something happens to someone else in our community, in our campus community, in Joplin, in Missouri, in this part of the, when if when something happens to someone there, it also happens to us. The church that I serve does a project every summer called ShareFest. And at ShareFest, we've been doing this for 11 years. We take a week out of the summer and we partner together with a part of our city that has fallen into the ditch. And we send volunteers and resources. And we go and we be with people. But the craziest thing that we've learned is not what it feels like to feel good about helping somebody. The craziest thing we've learned is how much we are connected to each other. So that when something good happens for them, it happens for us. What if compassion means understanding that what happens to other people in our communities and in our spaces happens to us as well? And how would God form us differently if we actually thought that way? What if we started thinking, I don't need a target to serve. I need a person to become. I want to challenge you with a couple questions today that I hope will be helpful. That I think come out of the story of Jesus. The first one is this. What if loving the others in our lives starts by simply knowing them? What if loving the others in our lives starts with simply knowing them, knowing who they are? I had an opportunity when I was in college to serve in a soup kitchen in Washington, D.C., and I was with a bunch of other like really excited college guys and we were all going to change the world and all that stuff, which is possible. So don't get discouraged about that. But anyway, we, we had this idea that we were going to work in the soup kitchen and they wanted us to make sandwiches, bologna sandwiches with cheese and mustard. And we were like, we can do this. So we set up an assembly line and we did it American Enlightenment, rationalist, industrial style. We had an assembly line and we were firing sandwiches. They were, this, this was going to be the most efficient serving of the homeless in history. And so we started making these sandwiches one at a time, one at a time. We had this huge pile and people started coming in. And as these guys, as these women and men started coming in, we're handing them sandwiches and they wouldn't look at us. They wouldn't look at us. And finally, one guy, I handed him a sandwich and he looked back at me and he said, is that mustard? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, need something else. And in my sanctified and spiritually formed nature, I said to myself, you're not going to eat today and you want to quibble over condiments? But guess what? Homeless people are allowed not to like mustard. 
Because he wasn't just a population. He wasn't a target. He was a human being. And to serve him, to love him as myself, meant to know him. His tastes, his likes, his dislikes. Because if not, then we just make people into a random group. We are very good at creating Samaritans because what we do is we take a group of people and we attach an ism to the end of their names. We are very good at creating Samaritans for ourselves, but we're not very good at knowing as a way of loving. So what if compassion means knowing people so we know how to love them? Because if we don't, they're just avatars. They're just profile pics. They're just causes. And we'll never know the true goodness of loving them. And what we'll do is we'll end up being more like the priest and the Levite than the Samaritan. We won't love them well. Second question is this. What if loving the others in our lives means recognizing ourselves in them? I went on a trip to serve with CMF in Nairobi, Kenya. And we were at this school called uh, the Joska School. There's a girls and boys school there. It's a fantastic place. And one of the days we had some open time and they encouraged us to go out and sit and talk with some of the students. I know, I know. It's a guy teaching in chapel and it's an ubiquitous Africa story. But hang in there. This is going to be great. So I sat down on this hillside with three bright-eyed, just curious and excited 10-year-old girls from the school. And we sat down and we made our space and we kind of looked at each other awkwardly. And I'm like, so what do you want to talk about? And they looked at me and they said, can you tell us about Rihanna? (laughs) You mean um, the singer, right? The fire, the singer? They're like, yes, we love her very much. And Jet Li. And I'm like, what is going on here? (laughs) All the immunizations and 24 hours on a plane. I land in Kenya and I sit down and we want to talk about Rihanna and Jet Li. And the amazing thing is... (laughs) We find ourselves in other people if we'll just pay attention. These are 10-year-old girls. Whether they're in Kenya or they're in Kansas, they want the same things. They long for the same things. My wife and I took a trip to Chicago for the first time, and we were living in that small town that Chad and I pastored in, and we were so excited. We were so excited, so we went into the big city, and we were like, oh, this is going to be great. What we're going to do is let's go eat at like a really good Chicago restaurant. So we went to this place called Big Bowl. Big Bowl is a chain. It's everywhere. It's not a Chicago thing. So we realized two things. Number one, it's a chain. Number two, we're idiots. So we sat down at this restaurant and we're looking around and I'm hearing all kinds of different languages. I'm seeing all kinds of different people. There are people of the Sikh faith wearing turbans. There are people speaking Spanish and Chinese. There are people who look different than anybody I'd ever seen before. And I'm sitting there and I suddenly became overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed with the idea of how in the world do all of us live on the same planet and end up in the same restaurant at the same time? And then I looked in front of me and realized, we all got to eat. We all have to eat. We all sweat. We all get sleepy. We all get tired. We all love the new Taylor Swift song. All of us. Okay, not all of us. Some of us do, but you know, whatever. Look what you made her do, right? Okay. In this political season, I have watched us as a country just get totally divided. And the reason we've gotten divided is because how fast we went to dehumanizing people who are just like us. What if loving each other, becoming the kind of person who loves, means understanding that all of us have the same fears. 
and our speed to dehumanize will continue to spread that gulf. We all have to eat. We all sweat. We all get curious. We all fall in love. We all have our hearts broken. Loving means seeing ourselves and others and not just the good stuff. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, we will continue to despise people until we have recognized, loved, and accepted what is despicable in ourselves. Until we see the darkness in us, we can never deal with the darkness in other people. And to know that we're just like them and they're just like us. What if loving means seeing ourselves in others? See ourselves in the priest and the Levite to know that we're somebody's enemy. To see ourselves on the side of the road welcoming whatever help might come. What if the key objective in this whole story is that we need to learn to love like a Samaritan and to know what it means to be him and to know what it means to be us? So who's your neighbor? Who's your other? One summer we were in Anaheim, California, my wife and my daughter and I. My daughter is a budding theologian. She's 10, but she's going to rock it. I can feel it. And we were at this place called the Crystal Cathedral. And the Crystal Cathedral has tons of different sculptures in its garden. And there's one sculpture in particular that is Jesus at the feeding of the 5,000. And it's such a joyful picture It's him with the basket and it's him with the kids gathered around him. And he's got this look on his face like this is the best day ever. Which I think Jesus had that look on his face most of the time. Probably not at the crucifixion, but most of the time had this look on his face like this is the best thing that's ever happened. And my daughter walks up and she looks at this thing and she goes, that's a big deal. And I said, oh yeah, multiplying loaves and fish, that is a big deal. She goes, no, 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 not for him, for that guy. And she points to the little boy who's handing over his basket to Jesus. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, he didn't know if he was going to get his lunch back. And I'm like, I need to start taking notes, apparently, when you're hanging around here. <laughs> and my wife comes along and said, yeah, you know, sometimes you, you miss the sacrifice even when you see the miracle. See, because it's a miracle for us to love one another. Because we're messy and we're broken. We're annoying. We have opinions that other people don't like. I know, I know. There's a miracle that happens when we risk walking on the other side of the road. When we risk becoming a Samaritan in order to fulfill what Jesus is calling us to. There's a risk that comes. So what if the greatest miracle you and I could ever participate in is the love of others with no strings attached? What if in doing this and knowing both those who have been, we've been taught to suspect them. We've been taught to avoid them. What if in going towards them, we do the only thing that really matters to God anyway? Are we willing to risk respectability and the loss of our tribe to know that the other in our world who's on our floor, in our class, in our neighborhood back home, even going to sit around the table with us this coming Thanksgiving, are we willing to risk it just to know that we've loved them as we love ourselves? If so, Jesus is challenging us today. Don't find a task. Ask the question, who's my neighbor? How do I love them and how do I know them? Can I pray for you? Jesus, this is an awesome moment in our lives because uh, this day is never going to happen again. We have today, we have this moment. We live in Kronos time, which is ticking, but you live in Kairos time that is above us. And you ask us to enter into that with 
you. To know how we love and how we live. And how we do all that with all of our strength towards you and towards our neighbors as ourselves. Help us not to become complacent. Help us to not create isms. Help us to be like the compassionate Samaritan who may be everybody's enemy, but steps into that moment and says, oh, it's, it's worth it. It's worth it. Thank you for the questions that make us who we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.